and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Roos, owner and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. Most traditional banks were unprepared for the flight to digital that occurred due to COVID-19. Mobile-only Challenger Bank Current, however, saw consumer growth skyrocket during the pandemic, appealing to lower wage earners who don't want to worry about minimum balances or overdraft fees. Serving over 1 million active users and projected to double in size by the end of the year, Current serves a sweet spot of workers who live paycheck by paycheck in previously frequented, very expensive check catching facilities or risk paying penalty fees at traditional banks. We cut off with Stuart Sopp, founder and CEO of Current and previous Wall Street trader to discuss the strategy of lowering the barriers for financial inclusion to a growing demographic of younger, lower paid consumers who want hassle-free basic banking services. In today's episode, Stuart discusses how the pandemic served as a launchpad for the Challenger Bank and how to differentiate a Challenger Bank in a crowded marketplace. Welcome to the show, Stuart. So much has happened in the banking industry over the past few months with probably the biggest changes involving the required move to digital for the majority of banking transactions and the ability for consumers to reassess their financial relationships during a time of financial stress. According to recent news reports, Current has certainly benefited from these trends, opening more than 100,000 accounts and I think April and May with growth continuing unabated as lower earning consumers search for alternatives to traditional banks and check cashing facilities. Um, with the focus on financial inclusion, Current is a mobile-only checking account that's designed to make banking easy and transparent with spending tools that help a consumer manage their money more efficiently. Can you discuss a little bit about how you move from being a career trader at various financial institutions globally to being the founder of Current? Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me today. Yes, and I appreciate that intro. I have an interesting background, I guess, at least differentiated from other uh, CEOs, founders in this space. As you can hear, I'm English. I've moved jobs and also countries, mainly doing foreign exchange and short-term interest rate trading since uh, late 90s. And, and also before that, I studied aeronautical engineering, just to throw everyone through a twist. So really uh, love to apply myself in different vectors. And so was a personal consumer of financial products in Asia for a long time, right? In the China boom in Australia, Singapore, and Hong Kong. And just saw what it was like to have very little in the way of legacy banking infrastructure. And that goes for other infrastructures as well. But really in the finance space, it really interested me. I came here with Morgan Stanley in, I think, 2011, post-crisis. You could imagine, obviously, being a banker and especially a trader on Wall Street, not overly loved and invited to many dinner parties since then. And so really, you know, hitting midlife, seeing, you know, what could be done if you started from scratch with new technology and also coming to New York and then, you know, promptly coming here and getting, you know, no credit, a bunch of checkbooks and realizing there was a lot of work to be done. And I was sort of looking around, looking for my next challenge and, and thought, well, hell, you know, this is pretty interesting. The Europeans are, are running full steam ahead with very different business plans, but also they were getting funded and it was looking interesting. And of course, Shamira at Bank Simple uh, back in those days, he was having some success, at least the first guy out the gate. And so um, in 2014, 2015, I took the leap and decided to apply myself to this problem. Obviously, Current ended up in the sweet spot of opportunity as the basic consumers in essential but lower paying jobs increased at the same time the physical banking locations closed. What has been the impact of the pandemic to Current's business? 
this pandemic has, has been uh, one of external shock and awe to all businesses and all people globally. Certainly no one had planned for this. And so for us, it was uh, one of, uh, of a few things that was going on. One very high level, I believe this pandemic is a business accelerant, a business strategy accelerant, like you've just mentioned. The move from analog to digital is happening in all industries, all, all vectors. And in banking, it has been somewhat slow, right? We've seen in the late 90s, we, we sort of moved from sort of branch only to internet. And then we've really sort of been stuck on the internet web-based, right? And you've got Ally and USA and such. But no one really mobile first and developed on a mobile network. And that's very different, right? Smaller screen space, You've got to deal with Apple and Google. There's a bunch of other reasons why, you know, also acquisition, mobile acquisition is different to what you would normally do if you own branch or advertised on TV to web. So there's a bunch of things in there that this pandemic has accelerated. And it's not easy for many other businesses, especially the 4,700 banks and 5,000 credit unions to overnight just go, okay, we're now mobile first. That's very hard for them to do, right? And a lot of them have commoditized um, and outsourced tech stacks with Fiserv and Jack Henry, et cetera. And so, so that was one thing was like, okay, it really pushed a company like Current out of the pack. And it's like, okay, these guys are mobile first. They're always on. They have 24-7 chat and support. Uh, and it didn't go down. And it was getting people's uh, money faster in a period when a lot of branches, even though they're essential businesses, were closed for good reason. And so the other thing was, you know, we have a young workforce mainly based in New York or went work from home um, within a week with almost no productivity hits. That was an interesting uh, development that we had to do. The other thing was the dynamic nature of the macro environment, right? So all of a sudden we're in this space where we serve effectively essential workers. Almost you know, 90% of our growth was essential workers over the last year and a half. And so from the government's response, the stimulus package and, and, and such, they utilized the IRS database for, for payments, right? So we'd just gone through a tax refund season, insane amount of, of growth and, and um, acquisition for us and, and also delivering a service to our client, uh, our members. And then, you know, almost a month later, we're starting to see that we needed to uh, utilize the same payment rails and, and information to apply these stimulus checks. Then it was uh, first-time deposit checks that uh, Donald Trump put his, his name on, those check, the physical checks. Now we had to work out like a whole flow for that. And then from there, we went into unemployment benefits and making sure that our members had uh, the right information that they could apply for them and PPP loans and all this other stuff for sole props. So there was lots of things happening from March, April, May that you had to be very reactive and that you had to be very resilient, anti-fragile as an organization and to deliver uh, those services. Now, if you're an incumbent uh, bank or credit union, those things are just all impossible, right? Like you're just waiting for things to happen to you. And I think that's really the difference between modern day fintech and maybe some of the incumbents that don't own all their tech stack at this point. Well, yeah, and we saw it with the uh, small business PPP packages that those organizations that did the best already had the digital rails in place to handle SBA loans. Those who didn't either scurried very quickly to get up to speed within, in some cases, a weekend. The smaller you were, actually, the better off you were because you could be that agile as you needed to be. But those organizations that had old rails doing it the old way and a lot of it being paper or what I'll call fake digital really struggled. But, you know, Current was also one of the first organizations to make the government funds immediately available instead of waiting for the final settlement. How was that received by your customers? And how do you get that through? I, I don't know how big your approval process is, but you're putting the risk on yourselves. You're, you're basically saying, we're going to take the risk of an overdraft 
that is not normal, but to give our, our members access to their funds quicker? Yeah, that's a really good question. So if you look at our core value props, which is almost all about liquidity management or getting liquidity, the, the our members' money in their pockets as quickly as possible. So we pay payroll you know, two to three days early on a weekly basis. If you get paid on, on a Friday, you get it on a Wednesday. And that's on our balance sheet as well. So we get that file from the Fed. We've got our own um, tech stack. It's called Current Core. Um, we do our own ACH origination. We own the ledger. We do natural file passing, all this other sort of, I would say, uh, uh, banking nerdy stuff. And so when we get that file, instead of waiting for it to settle, we, we credit it straight away. So we take employer risk. Now, when it came to, and we take employer risk day in, day out, week in, week out. And most of our employers are big employers like Amazon, Walmart, Instacart, obviously done very well, DoorDashing and Uber and Lyft, those kind of companies. So good companies, but some risk, right? And so when the government, the US government comes along and says, hey, here's $1,200, obviously the balance sheet requirement is insanely, is, is much bigger than than, uh, than what we uh, were used to. But we just felt because it was the firstly a patriotic thing to do, it was our duty to get people's money in our members' hands as quickly as possible, in my view. And also we're taking US government credit risk. I'll take that every day, right? And we're trying to do the right thing. So, and so getting that money, uh, as soon as we saw the files on a Friday night, we, 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 everyone stayed until uh, midnight in the company and over the weekend to make sure we were crediting those accounts from our balance sheet, moving money around and all this other stuff, working with our banking partners to make sure that people who are out of jobs and there's now 43 million or so, and they didn't have those unemployment benefits that they could turn the lights back on, get their groceries, look after their loved ones. That's what's important, right? It's not it's not a selfish thing. So with the possibility they, they're now projecting 23, 25% unemployment rate, basically your base of potential prospects actually is increasing or staying large over time, is it not? That's right. So our addressable market has increased in a couple of different ways. One of which is unemployment. Obviously, if you're on unemployment benefits, it's for a fixed time only. You can't afford expensive financial services, but you do still care about getting your money as quickly as possible. That that makes sense. And so obviously current fits in nicely towards uh, someone who's on, on those benefits. And then the other one is through this whole pandemic, we saw obviously significant job losses in the market, especially around retail. We had about 20% of our user base on retail that then further went into unemployment benefits. But the other 80% were working at places like FedEx, Amazon, Walmart, like I just mentioned, like infrastructure, construction, nurses, National Guardsmen, things like that. And they've actually increased their hiring. And so not only have we seen like a higher acquisition for people connecting those employ employees, they're also taking overtime because there's, there's so much demand for those workers. And so um, we've seen sort of addressable market increase in multiple vectors, multiple angles, and also average spend, average use go up, retentions much, much higher. Uh, our activity level is way above model. So we seem like a lot of this, you know, in startups, you have to be a little bit lucky. And, and so we were in the right place in the right time, offering the right services to really help people in this pandemic. So you mentioned earlier in the interview, Simple, and I'm familiar with Movin. And so how is your organization different and how do you grow or how do you intend to grow while others maybe have flatlined? Yeah, absolutely. So 
It's a crowded field, and we knew that before we we sort of, oh, I dived in, right? 4,700 banks, there were 5,000 plus back then, you know, four or five years ago, and 5,000 credit unions. So this, by just the incumbent field, is an insanely competitive field, right? But we don't see much competition from the incumbents just from the previous points I just made. They have a unit economic problem where they can't focus their market on, they don't want to drive any more business, that loses them money, and they shouldn't do that. They have a responsibility to their shareholders to not lose money. So that makes sense. When you look at the other fintechs, the um, not many people have built their own technology stack. So you look at some of the names you just mentioned, they were sort of plug and play. And, and by the way, this is sort of what I would call the problem is only exacerbated with the um, introduction of all these B2B fintechs, right? So you can go to you know one of five or six names in this country and set up a debit card, savings account, all this other stuff. And then effectively, you're just a marketing arm. Right. That's what your job is to go market for them. And most of the economic value is then extracted by these third parties that you've sort of strung together with with APIs. We differ because we built our own technology. Right. So we built all that that tech stack. Now, we do plug and play with third parties in some KYC and this other stuff, but much, much different compared to, to our competitors. And so most of the economic value for us sits with us. And so that enables us to go after people they're not able to. Right. And so. We're able to also build products and services that no one else has because we own our own technology. Now, normally that sits with the card processor like it does with a bank because uh, you're just a program manager. And so those two things, by building your own tech stack, has enabled us to have a differentiated product and also go after people. What I call as technology-enabled demographic differentiation, that's a mouthful and a half. But what it means is, is basically we're able to go after younger people who have less money, and that's only increasing with, with what's happening in the macroeconomic environment. So it's interesting. We talked about the fact that you did a lot of time over in the uh, Far East, and we talked a little bit about how China, because of the use of data and because of building from a digital structure out first, they're really organizations that can do really well on the inclusionary factor, that almost everybody can qualify and get a banking account. Isn't this pretty much the same type of model where you're saying, I'm using technology and a banking foundation to basically be able to reach everybody. I mean, you, you could obviously reach myself or somebody that has um, higher income and serve them just as well. It's just that your differentiation is really with the people that aren't being served by the traditional services, correct? Yeah, that, that's right. So having lived in Asia for a little bit, sort of saw what was going on there. We are a pure capitalist society here in America, and that has good and bad things about it, right? And we all know, we've started to see some of the the tail end of the bad things uh, most recently. Wealth inequality being, to me, the main main point there. And so I'm, you know, being a capitalist, I believe in solving problems through capital markets and and the way that that America has been, has grown. When you look at, say, Europe, there is no real banking problem, right? So the, the, you know, the benefits are higher, the safety nets are higher, it's a socialist economy. They have one regulatory body, at least maybe two now, Brexit. But so you get the ideas that it's much simpler. And, and that goes the same, even more so for a communist country that has capitalist sort of leanings like China. And so they're able to execute in a very fair way, just by definition in finance. And so there is no opportunity to fill those gaps. Now, in America, what's happening is that we're seeing striation of society. We're seeing people who have assets. Since 2008, the Fed has done a great job of saving the economy, but done a very bad job of making that equally distributed. And so if you've got an asset, it is inflated insane, insane amounts. And we've just seen 
another round of that happen, we'll see this problem exacerbate over the next two to four years. And so if you have debt and you're living paycheck to paycheck and technology is deflating your wages and all this other stuff, well, you're able to live by bridging the difference with all these other debt facilities and you're able to service it because there's not much in interest rate. And so uh, a poorer class of people ever growing is being held down. What I believe is solving the wealth inequality problem through a company like Current is that let's, let's solve it with technology. Let's keep, you know, that we'll have to have some elements of socialism. We'll have to increase the, the minimum wage, in my view. It's way too low. Like, it's, we can see the data. It's just, it's crazy low. Uh, the equity markets are too high. I'm happy to, to see those big corporates who, who are employing uh, current customers to uh, pay them higher and, and maybe reduce some of those earning multiples that they have and make, you know, the average essential worker or worker uh, in a better place and a more robust place. And so to me, this is really what America is screaming out for, is companies like Current to close that gap and help with the wealth inequality. So your mission is to promote financial inclusion through low cost or or reasonable banking services that also have features and functionality beyond just a transaction account. I would imagine that as a result, you've probably appealed to minorities more than traditional banks. And and obviously, we've already talked about the lower income strata more than the traditional bank. If this is the case, how can you leverage this market position to respond to what I'm going to call the social pandemic we're facing at the same time as our health pandemic? I think wealth inequalities, I I think all of it is tied, right? I think we've had several, over the last 10 years, again, since 2008, we've seen several campaigns addressing several issues. And the BLM social pandemic, as you mentioned, is being the latest and, and, and obviously most justified. Yes, we do over-index. We, we try and close the wealth inequality gap through technology. That's what, you know, our mission is to improve the financial outcomes for our members. So that's that's our mission. And so when you have a mission like that, you're focusing on lower income people. And unfortunately, um, African-Americans over-index a lot, right? Minority groups over-index a lot in the, in the poorer category. And so just by default, we um, we service them more. But of course, there's everyone, everyone who doesn't have much money is serviced by current. I feel like wealth inequality is the source of a lot. I mean, specific issues aside is a source of a lot of the discord in America, like I just mentioned. And I feel like when we try and close it, I think a lot of discussions can come back to the table. That's what I believe. So who do you consider your competition? in your space right now? And how do you view companies like Chime and Dave and Revolut, Monzo, whoever else you want to put in that set? Yeah, so all of them. (laughs) The incumbent banks, um, like I mentioned, you just mentioned, we'll see continued consolidation. We'll see a bunch of M&As, I believe, in that space shortly. And also the people trying to partner. I think you've got three main sort of buckets. One is, yes, we have Chime, who are clearly uh, well capitalized and and slightly ahead of us in terms of like two years older than us. We have a demographic differentiation and product feature differentiation, but we're very similar. There's no doubt about it. We have Square, who are already listed, who seem to have pivoted pretty, and I use that word carefully, over the last earnings call, right? Like, obviously, SMB is not doing so well, and now they're hanging their hat on being a challenger bank. So that is an interesting entrance. They, they were looking warm for some time. Now, they have outsourced a lot of their tech. They're a very large company, um, so should be respected. With, with, honestly, great leadership. Great leadership. You know, what's interesting about them, they have technology and engineering leadership, which makes a big difference. It makes a big difference. And that's really where you're seeing the differentiators for the competitive field. Like if you think about those incumbents, they're not winning because they don't, they're not able to tr- attract the talent. They're not able to incentivize along with the, the company and they're not able to ship code and product features to keep up. 
right? This is really about value. It's not banking for a long time was commoditized and it was all about who could cut the value, right? If you could get big enough, you could, you know, undercut your, your competitor and that's how you won. And you won by size and scale. Remember the Citibank days, they just became like this behemoth and it was going to, you know, Salomon Smith Barney and they were going to do this big thing. And that's how, and that's how banking uh, went, you know, in, into its model. And then of course the internet happened, the social networks have come about, the uh, cloud-based computing has happened. And now it's all about shipping value and product, not about cutting costs. They just can't hire the talent. So Big tech firms like Square and Chime and us will be up there. Viro clearly in the mix, but seem to be very quickly heading into a banking license, which, you know, a banking license to me signifies that your core KPI is deposits and you want to go into lending, right? You're going to be a bank. And as soon as you do that, you're now in the in the space of against Marcus. You're in the space of, you know, Ally and all, you know, USAA. And I don't know about you. The but, government. You know, I mean, the, the government. government. <laughs> You're in the government's game. And I don't know about you, but I, you know, I don't, I, I don't think I can win against some of these incumbents just yet. And then you, you're seeing the UK tourists, as I call them, bless them. They're, they're great, but they've come with their sort of quirky Englishness. And I can say that being an Englishman. And they've come over here with varying value props. Some have, most of them have been centered around foreign exchange, which is not a problem in America, right? Not a problem. And so they haven't been able to pivot quick enough into what the real problem is over here. They don't own their own tech either. And it's a secondary business line for them. And so I see them retreating uh, and continued retreat over there. They're well capitalized again. They can burn other people's money, but I don't see them as realistic competitors. And then you're seeing like Dave's earnings, and PFMs and savings accounts that have got a card on it. And they're quickly, they're trying quickly to get to high ground. Some of them are in breach of pretty serious uh, regulatory issues in my view. And so they need to get to high ground very quickly. And that means getting a card on it, calling yourself a bank, trying, trying to do the right thing. The jury's out whether that will work. Obviously, they've had insane growth. You know, if I was to sell $100 for $50, you could do that all day. Yeah. And again, you, you look at the earnings and there's, you, you can't call um, funding rounds earnings. Just like uh, the traditional banks got caught in the whole digital situation in, in March, where if you weren't really doing digital, you got caught. The fintechs get caught in the, okay, can you really generate real earnings as opposed to just funding? And at what point do you get out of that cycle? I'm going to have you put on a different hat right now. And I'm going to say, okay, I give you a small bank, a traditional bank, but one that you can, you can change the culture. How would you go about building, if you were a small bank, how would you go about pivoting, we'll use that all the time, um, to be able to compete in what looks like it's going to be a 80 to 90% digital marketplace where consumers, the longer we stay in this mode, the less they're going to realize or the more they're going to realize they don't need physical structure. If you had a small bank or you got a small bank and you said, I need to become something different, what would you do? Yeah, this is a tough question. Um, so really, if you've got a niche, you know, you're an agricultural bank or you're, you know, you've, you've got one of those vectors, those, those um, silos that you can sort of hide away in and, and, and high touch relationship banking is still and probably won't go away. Um, you, you, you can probably hide there, right? That, that's just fine. If you're sort of the smaller bank and you're a sort of main street bank, then you don't need high touch. And high touch, by the way, in my view, means people, branches and all that stuff. High touch will correlate very quickly with affluence. And that's what we're seeing with Chase and Bank of America and Wells Fargo is that they're opening up 
or have pre pre pandemic, right? So everything's caveated. But pre pandemic, they they were opening up a lot of branches in very affluent areas. They were closing lower income branches because the unit economics don't work. And so if you got this real estate and the sort of lower income is being served digitally, which is what we're seeing with like books and everything else that's happened over the last 25 years. You look at the, the Amazon thing, it's like books haven't died, bookshops haven't gone away entirely, but they're damn expensive. And it's for, for kind of learned rich people who, who want an experience and a story around it and want, and want high touch. And so if you're a small bank, I would quickly go upscale pretty quick, you know, and, and you can charge margins and, and all that other stuff. And you can sit there and, and deal with fairly affluent people. But that's really the only way I would survive in that. I guess the, the second way would be, I still see there is a business out there for a fintech to create a conglomerate, a co-op with one brand you you know remove all the local branding you create a single brand and almost like a franchise and go around the country and and start and start to do things like that and i think that could work but you know that wouldn't be in your power and finally you've basically been a mobile transaction account with some expanded account management features being able to see your 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 money in a new way do you see current expanding into other areas that your market still needs such as Simplified digital savings, small dollar digital lending, you know, what I call bridge loans, almost what you did when the government checks came out and and these people needed money faster than they were going to get the checks or any other services. Yeah, the, these are all good points. So, so we have savings, um, we have roundups um, and also they're called savings pods. They don't have yield on them. We'll address that later this year. It hasn't been a focus for us. That's not your growth model. Yeah, that's right. That is the way markets has come in is with is with high interest uh, savings accounts, very transparent lending. It's just a different business model. That's right. And, and so they're going after a different user, someone who has money, someone who can save. And again, their core KPI is deposits. That's what they want. We want spend. We need, that's how we've set up. And so really, you know, we do have savings. We do want people to be in a better place and to take that differential saving from a big bank to current and, and keep it in their pocket and, and, and buy things they need. We're focused on uh, liquidity management. So whilst we don't, we're not explicit on revolving credit or like those small dollar loans, we do have overdraft facility, free overdraft facility up to $100. Um, we have gas hold crediting, which means that you use your, your card at the, at the gas station, we'll credit whatever with authorization hold it has back to your account instantly as you use it. So you have access to that money. Um, and we pay the payroll early and things like that. Now in our future, for sure, and I think for, for some of our bigger competitors, we'll see credit building, credit, and, and also some form of um, installment loans, uh, small dollar lending, like you just mentioned. Liquidity management is, if you draw straight lines, liquidity management is, is effectively credit, and it needs to be done in the right way. It needs to be non-predatory, and it needs to be legal and compliant, which some of our competitors, I believe, are probably crossing that line. Hey, Stuart, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a great conversation. Thank you, Jim, and I'm just happy to bring a little bit of cheer to, uh, to the financial services sector here. Thank you for your time today. You know, that was a really interesting discussion with Stuart Sop from Current. I think what's interesting in this, all the discussions and all the episodes we've had, we really haven't talked to anybody that's really searching out and trying to serve the underserved consumer. Those that work from paycheck to paycheck that may be using check cashing facilities or or maybe get feed to death at traditional banks and, and credit unions. I think what's interesting is going after that marketplace that, by the way, is only growing right now. They're able to see their demographic group that is very narrow and potentially serve them even better in the future through added services, 
both inside and outside banking. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, raised a top five banking podcast. I genuinely appreciate the support you have provided since we started the endeavor almost a year ago. If you enjoy what we are doing, please be sure to subscribe to Banking Transform on your favorite podcast app. Also, please take a short amount of time to show your love in the form of a review. It means the world to me. Finally, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out the research you're doing on digital transformation, the future work in banking, retail banking innovation, and the changing dynamics of financial marketing for the Digital Bank Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Lawnbreak, and audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.